Hello, and welcome to episode 61 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. We'll get to my guest in just a minute, but first, three quick requests. First, subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. It's the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't need to download them. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Secondly, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating on iTunes is the best way to boost this podcast in the rankings and the search, so I kindly encourage that. And finally, a reminder, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold. It is a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news for those who shoot and edit their own stories. It's getting picked up by college classes. It's great for young journalists. Again, that's The Solo Video Journalist on sale now. I had not heard of my guest today, until last month. That is when the Best of Photojournalism Awards came out from the National Press Photographers Association, and this person's name was on two captivating video entries for documentary efforts. I looked her up and found a journalist who, at just 25, has become an in-demand photographer-slash-producer-slash-reporter-slash-editor for, among others, The Huffington Post, New York Times, and now NBC Left Field. Then I watched her work. It is daring, beautifully shot, with depth and technique you'd think would be beyond her years. It didn't take me long for, say, gotta interview her. So, without further ado, Emily Cassie, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Emily, as we were emailing to set this up, you were on the road reporting. I don't know if you can talk about what you're working on right now, but tell me just in general, how much of your life do you spend on the road? I spend most of my time on the road um, during production. Post-production, I get to sit in a nice, quiet, dark editing room um, for a few weeks. Uh, but most of the time, I'm jumping around both the United States and internationally. Uh, most recently, I've been working on an investigation for The New York Times about immigration detention, um, which will hopefully come out soon. Very good. Well, it has definitely paid off uh, with some great, great work. I first mentioned you on the blog a few weeks ago in my post about the stories that inspired me from this past year's NPPA, NPPA uh, Video Photojournalism winners. And about your piece, I said I took away the following lesson. Don't just look tra to tradition for inspiration. And that's what I want to explore today with you. In going to your website and watching your work, you seem like such a successful case study in how to do compelling and fulfilling visual storytelling. Tell me how you got into it and how you embraced it so quickly in your career. Sure. I always had a passion for um, addressing injustices. And so that's really where I came at it from. Um, I was interested in looking at issues that were undercovered. I was looking for ways to lift up voices of people that were underserved, um, ignored, or suffering um, various injustices. So I started making documentary films when I was very young in high school. Um, and I started traveling to East Africa and conducting research, um, which culminated in a film that I made in college, um, called I married my family's killer, um, about intermarriage and post, uh, genocide Rwanda. And, um, from there I took a job at the Huffington post as their 
first really multimedia reporter. Um, and that really gave me a chance to explore stories and reporting from a visual lens, but incorporating text and photo and video and graphics. Um, and from there, I was lucky enough to move on to uh, the role of creative director and one of the founders of Highline, which is the Huffington Post long form magazine under the direction of Greg Weiss and Rachel Morris. Um, and with them, I had a major opportunity to work on long form investigative stories and choose how we would tell them. So when I got a pitch or when I was working on a story reporting myself, the whole question was, what is the best way to tell this story visually? And what are the new tools that we can use to tell it? So that's interaction, that's data journalism, that's illustration, animation, um, and as well as video and photo. So it was looking at integrating older forms of traditional journalism, really strong reporting skills, and incorporating the new ideas of engaging readers online through visuals. And then from there, you've been doing work, as you said, with the New York Times and also NBC Left Field. Uh, let's dive into some of these pieces. We'll start with NBC Left Field, where you produced one of your award winners, Hunting for Addicts. That was about a terrifying healthcare scam in South Florida. Give a quick description of the project, and then we'll dive into how you produced it. Sure. So what's happening in South Florida is part of the crisis um, that we're looking at um, concerning the opioid um, epidemic, as well as the healthcare crisis in America. And what I found was that addicts were being lured to fraudulent uh, treatment centers and what they call flop houses. They're supposed to be sober homes, but um, they don't actually operate as such. And they were being lured in and exploited for their health insurance benefits um, so that these people who were running them could make money. Um, and they would get them high. They would um, keep them in abysmal conditions. What I was shocked to find out beyond that was that a lot of the young women who were being exploited in these fraudulent treatment centers and flop houses were also being sex trafficked by their owners. So they were being moved around to different places and forced to engage in sexual acts um, with uh, various clients, which would give the, the owners an additional income. Um, so it was a really horrifying scene there. Um, and uh, was really a product of uh, what's been going on in the rest of the country concerning the opioid crisis. Now, you the the award that you won in the NPPA was for solo video journalism, for in-depth for that piece. So this was a piece that you went out and shot and put together on your own down in Florida. Yeah, I had, um, you know, I had uh, some really amazing help along the way. Um, I almost entirely work on my own. Sometimes I work... Uh, occasionally with a partner, um, but I'll research a story, I'll report it out, um, I'll go shoot it, um, and then I'll come back and edit it. Um, of course, I had some uh, associate producers on the piece who come in and look at the edit and give some thoughts, um, uh, a colleague in the field who would come in and um, help me shoot a couple things. So generally, I'm on my own, but I'm always relying on, you know, um, different folks to enhance the piece and bring a fresh eye to it to make sure that I'm on the right path. And working for NBC Left Field, it, it's such an innovative group over there. I just love the work that I see coming out of that space. It's so original, so unattached to the way that stories are, quote, supposed to be told. 
in journalism. Uh, what's the typical timeline on a piece like that? How much time do you get to work on it? Is there um, a standard amount of time you get, or does it kind of depend on the piece? Sure. So, yeah, the, the team over at NBC Left Field is really innovative, really creative, um, and they're trying a bunch of new stuff. And and I think a lot of the motivation, which came from um, uh, Matt Danzigo, who leads the team, is, you know, how do we take great cinematic storytelling and really good journalism and help bring an online audience into these really important stories? Um, so that was kind of the premise. And for this project in particular, I, I had already been doing a, um, a few weeks of research and development when I came on to do this story for them. I did another week of development with them. I went into the field for a few weeks, and then I came back and did the edit in two weeks. Um, so all in all, it was about uh, five or six weeks total. Um, but for them, it really depends on the piece. They turn things around in a day sometimes, and sometimes they have you know a 30-minute doc um, that will take, you know, five months. So, um, I think they're trying a lot of different forms. And in my case, I was somewhere in the middle. And you obviously work for, uh, for several entities doing work for NBC left field, but also, you know, starting with HuffPo and, and doing work for the New York times. Are you essentially, are you a freelancer and do you kind of have to pick and choose your spots as to whom you offer projects to, or who you receive projects from? How does that work for you? Sure. So I was full time on staff at the Huffington Post Highline. So um, I was there for several years and just exclusively working from them. Um, I went and uh, did a fellowship up in Cambridge in the UK where I was really honing my skills on international relations and politics. When I came back, I decided to take the freelancer route and really explore what it would be to move from project to project and think about um, what story I want to do next, where I want to do it, and who, what would be the best platform for it. So that's what I've been doing um, for the last year. And uh, I also have a feature film that I've just finished independently. Um, it's called A Girl Named C, and it's about child sexual assault in America through the eyes of a little girl. So that's a feature that will hopefully have its own life independently. And at this point, it's it's always a question of, What's this next story that needs to be told? And based on that, I decide, you know, where I should do it and how long it might take. Mm, tremendous. And your other award winner uh, this year in the MPPAs was with The New York Times called Into the Deluge, uh, Stories of Survival from Hurricane Harvey. Take me through the background of that. That, that sounds like a spur of the moment assignment in terms of having to go down right after a tragedy. Sure. Yeah, it, it was a really amazing team effort. They have an incredible team over there um, at the New York Times. Um, and essentially, I got a call from um, their incredible uh, video enterprise editor, Liz Balin. And she gave me a call one day, um, right when the hurricane had started and said, can you go down there? And I was on a plane a couple hours later. Um, and I met up with uh, Morgan Walker, who um, is a, a DP, and we were collaborating together. And uh, the two of us were traveling around um, Houston and finding stories. So um, I was responsible for kind of forming those main character uh, storylines. So I was out with um, I was out with uh, the um, troopers on the boats and I was out um, working with the families who had lost loved ones. Um, 
I was with the game wardens. I'm actually just holding a badge that they gave me here at the end of mm-hmm. our um, end of our time together because we did become very close with the game wardens in Texas who were running these special operations to save people um, and make sure they were okay. So, um, so we kind of developed those main storylines, and there were a bunch of other team members collecting other types of footage, aerial footage, um, different neighborhoods, and then the team back at the times was piecing it all together as we went. So we would be shooting, shooting, shooting. And then at night we would edit through the night, um, and send it back over to them, give them a rough timeline and all the footage. And then they'd be putting it all together and we'd be going out right again in the morning. So that was a really intense time and a really major team effort. Um, and it was a, yeah, it was, it was a really special experience. Um, really sad to see the, the kind of damage that was done. Mm-hmm. You have talked about several of the projects from last year. You mentioned you have a feature film coming out, and, and obviously you've done quite a bit of independent documentary work uh, through both your college career and now in the professional realm. And it seems to me like you have a very clear vision of the kinds of stories that you would like to tell and the ways to uh, develop the connections and develop the resources to be able to tell them. Um, talk about just how you maintain that vision because so much of the journalism world is not about the things that you care about. And yet you've been able to kind of find this lane for yourself. How has that been able to happen for you? Well, I'm very stubborn. (laughs) That's a good sign. (laughs) I'm very persistent. Um, so I think those are two qualities that are integral to me being able to do, um, the projects that I want to do. And I, in my undergrad, I, I went to Brown and um, that was a school where you could choose your own major and design your own courses. So I, I think I knew from an early age that I would be forging my own path independent of what the options, the traditional options were. Um, and that's really what I've been doing since the beginning of my career. When I got to Huffington Post, I really pitched them what I would like to do. And um, one of my first assignments was Ferguson, um, covering Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown. And I remember I went out to the national, went up to the national editor. Um, and I said to her, this is who I am. (laughs) This is why you should send me to Ferguson. This is what the budget would look like. And this is what I'm going to bring back for you. Mm -hmm. And, um, luckily she took a chance and let me go. Um, so that was, you know, that was the beginning of, of the kind of independent projects that I was doing. Cause from then on out, I, I saw how that was successful. And then it all became about if the work is good, I can keep doing these sorts of projects. So, um, do them well and cover stories that matter and it will speak for itself. That's kind of been my philosophy. And how did you know at that point, even what to say for a budget and what to say for time? Was that simply from doing the work you had done in college? Were you kind of faking it till you made it? What was the strategy there? <laughs> I'd say a little bit of both. Um, I think, I think we're all always faking it a little bit. Um, and you know, uh, being very optimistic in our predictions and, um, demands of ourselves. Um, but I, you know, I had worked on a, um, I had worked on this feature documentary. I married my, or sorry, it was both a feature on television and a short in festivals. I married my family's killer. So I had worked on that and 
for that, I had to manage budgets and grants. And so I had a concept of how to do that in that capacity. Um, and I had, um, you know, worked on a number of events and uh, college publications. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of working with larger budgets um, in a newsroom and understanding what an editor's looking for, it's, it was very much a learn as you go. I, I paid a lot of attention to what other people were doing. I'm, I was reading a lot. I was seeking out mentorship from people who had been in the industry a lot longer than me, particularly really strong women. Um, so through those, through that mentorship, um, it, it really allowed me to push open doors for myself. Who because are no some one, of those? No one, no one really opens them for you. So you kind of have to go knocking. That's absolutely true. And I was going to ask you, who were some of those mentors that really helped guide you? Sure. So one of the mentors was Alex Garcia um, over at the New York Times. And she's phenomenal, um, Emmy winning, um, incredible storyteller. Um, and I contacted her really after Ferguson, which she had been covering as well, and essentially said, you know, I'm uh, fangirling in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm such a big fan of your work. I would love to just sit down with you for coffee. Um, and so Alex become a good friend and I've gotten to work with her at the times, um, since, but, um, she was a great mentor to me over the years. Um, so that was really, really, um, integral to my success so far. Terrific. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Emily Cassie, documentarian extraordinaire with numerous outlets, including the New York Times and NBC Left Field. So let's talk about craft. And it's been, I don't want to say difficult, but it's definitely been a different approach for me trying to figure out questions to ask you because the work that you do is so diverse. There's the documentary work that you've done uh, for the various outlets we talked about. But then looking at your Huffington Post Highline work, I mean, that is so different, uh, especially coming from a video realm with the mixture of media, with photos, text, and video that you use. So I guess the question that I'd want to ask and what I'd want to talk more about is you work on these diverse projects. You know the themes you want to cover. Is there a common thread to how you begin and how you approach them? Um, yeah, that's a big question. But I think that um, whenever I'm approaching the story um, – my first question is like, what is the most important way for this? What is the most effective way and important way for this story to be told? So um, what is going to connect people to these characters? Um, what is the best way to present the information? Um, so at Highline, that's really where I started. Um, and there were pieces we worked on. For example, I like to take um, this one piece um, that we worked on on schizophrenia. And for me, I was thinking about um, how we would connect readers with this issue. And, and for me, it was about, okay, how do we kind of replicate the experience of a schizophrenic episode, um, a psychosis? How do we really connect people with that feeling so they can potentially develop empathy for this character? Um, and so what I did was I commissioned an artist who actually has schizophrenia and they did a kind of reflective um, series of um, interactive portraits of um, a psychosis episode that we kind of layered through the piece. Um, and then we added sound. We, I had him describe what it sounded like, what it felt like, and we tried to replicate that through the interactions. So for me, it's very, you know, sensory oriented and 
um, thinking about just thinking about the best way to represent the information, like what is the most compelling. So that's usually a starting point for me. Um, and then I, I move to kind of aesthetic next, like what is, you know, should this be a more traditional look? Should this be, you know, um, a lot of slow motion? Should this be told in really punchy graphics? Um, and then, you know, there's also the question of the brand. Who am I working for? Um, what's the kind of storytelling that they're trying to do? And how does my work fit in with that? So NBC left field piece, for instance, was um, very different from the other types of pieces that I do. It's very punchy. It's very, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it has a lot of quick cuts. It's very vibrant. There's a lot of dramatic lighting. Um, and that, that served a, a particular purpose, um, that we were trying to explore what it was like to be in this world and to be sucked in to this, um, crisis and an addiction. And so, um, it's really a combination of those factors. And then from there, it's about creating the best content in that particular medium. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to one of the very first things you said in that answer, which was that the first thing you really do is figure out the most effective way to convey the situation and convey the message. Because, you know, again, you're talking about topics, schizophrenia, sex trafficking, that are not exactly attention grabbers in a mass sense, right? I mean, it's it's not the kind of thing you normally see mass journalism produced about. And I'm curious as to what you found has had the most success, not in terms of getting you the assignment and getting to do the project, but what has crossed over the most? What is the kind of work that has worked best? And where where what are the projects that you thought maybe didn't hit their potential sure, in terms of yeah. viewership, in terms of viewership, not in terms of quality. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think, I think there's a misconception that really hard hitting journalism that covers, you know, difficult subject matter is, is not of interest to the general public. And I think that's, that's a misconception. I think if it's done well and it's, it's done in a captivating and innovative way, people will pay attention. And we found that with the left field piece. Hunting for Addicts was a piece about, as you said, sex trafficking, the opioid crisis, things that people don't really want to keep reading about, you would think. Um, but the piece garnered millions and millions of views. Um, we're talking like well over three million views, um, cumulative. So that tells us something like people will pay attention if it's done in a way that draws them into the story. Um, uh, we had a lot of success at Highline on really long form stories. We're talking, you know, anywhere between, um, 7,000 and 30,000 words, and then a ton of multimedia. And on a number of pieces, we were garnering again, millions of views. We were averaging close to a million views per piece. So, um, this, you know, this idea of creating, um, you know, creating really captivating visuals that help somebody, you know, relate to a story is really important. Um, and um, I think any story, um, whether it's, you know, dealing with something as terrible as a genocide like the Rohingya um, or um, anything domestic, even if it's in government and politics, um, people care and, and will be interested 
Um, but the trick is to tell it in a, in a really compelling um, and um, engrossing way. So um, in terms of a piece that hasn't been as successful, um, I think uh, there were a few misses that we had at Highline, not in the quality of the piece, but that didn't quite move over well or didn't have the kind of engagement we wanted. One particular piece we worked on um, was, it was a 60,000 word piece, um, which is a lot. It was essentially an online book. I think that's longer than the book that I actually wrote. I think the book that I wrote was 50,000. So that is an online piece that was longer than many books. (laughs) Right. And we did it in segments and it had tons of multimedia. um, But I think, you know, we hit a limit and understood that, you know, there's there's some there's some work that needs to be really um, adapted for the web um, and the translation really directly of a book onto the web, even though we tried to make it a more interactive book, um, wasn't working as well. So, you know, it's, it was a bit of trial and error, but um, we had a lot of success in, in a lot of those really visual stories. Well, it's interesting, too, because you talk about telling a story in a way that is compelling and engrossing. And I think for a lot of us who are video journalists specifically, sometimes the things that we think are compelling and engrossing might not be received as such. And I'm interested to hear your take on this because I don't necessarily have one, but I'm working on a, a large project myself and I was talking to a researcher who does a lot of work into framing issues and how to frame issues in a way so that people who are not normally receptive will pay attention. And she said that typically if you start with individuals, which in TV that's how we're taught to do, individualize the issue, bring it down to one person. Their analyst said that if you start by individualizing the stories, people will find reasons to use their own mindset to essentially discount that person's situation. And then I watch work like yours and I watch and I read work like yours, some of the Highline pieces, and they are very much centered around the individual and telling people's stories. And I would imagine that you would disagree that hearing and and really micro focusing on individuals with a broader context can't work and can't change minds. Yeah, I, I would say um, my experience, that obviously has not been my experience. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and we do keep pushing this idea of, you know, individual storytelling. Like I um, had the pleasure of working with Julia Yaffe on her piece, Mothers of Isis. So I was doing all the multimedia and creative direction for that. And she was writing and it was about um, mothers whose sons had been radicalized and went over to fight for ISIS. And so it was really looking at radicalization at large, um, but focusing on these individual storylines. And we found that people were um, really connected to that. Um, I I think you have to look at things like Netflix, right? Um, All of these stories making of a murderer, um, or even things like the Jinx um, and Serial, like the podcast, and um, Wild Wild Country, which has just come out on Netflix. Like people are are interested and want to consume that kind of content that follows characters. Um, and so I don't know that that um, premise is correct. I think um, I think following an individual or a, a series of characters can help people connect. Um, their human experience, and then um, 
allow for more understanding of the broader context and patients to understand the broader context, which can often be more complicated and nuanced and, um, uh, you know, um, difficult to understand for, for a public audience. Um, and we saw that in our 21st century gold rush, where we were looking at folks who were ca capitalizing off of the refugee crisis and were profiting. Um, we were, you know, looking at a major systemic issue in four different countries that had very complicated systems. Um, but in order to connect people with those stories, we, you know, we went to characters. We went to the story of a child worker who was lost in the system of um, illegal uh, uh, child workers in uh, Turkey. They're using Syrian child workers um, to run these factories. And, um, you know, we, we wanted to both explain how the government was not addressing the issue and how these factories actually functioned. Um, but the way to connect the viewer to that was to let them hear a little boy tell them about how he lost his family in Syria, traveled 30 days and, you know, ended up in Turkey and then, uh, you know, finally was there and couldn't go to school and had to start working. And he's 11 years old. So I think it's through those, you know, moments of compassion and individual narrative that allow people into a greater context and help them understand structural inequality. Very interesting, and I, I cannot disagree with that. I did want to ask you one other thing about your workflow. Uh, in the projects where you do work solo, what are the challenges you face in that realm? Um, I know so many, usually when I interview solo video journalists who are working at uh, local TV stations, their biggest challenges are the number of things they're asked to do in one day. Uh, I would imagine that you, as a long-form journalist, are at least somewhat more free of that burden, but I would imagine there are probably others that come with that as well. So talk about working alone and, and the benefits and drawbacks that you face on a given shoot. Yeah, I mean, I think um, oh, uh, being, <laughs> a, a, being a one-woman show is tough, and, and um, there are things that are really amazing about it. Um, you know, you're really immersed uh, and can become closer with, the subjects that you're working with, um, because there's no one else in the room and there's not that kind of production feeling to it. Um, I really love having, you know, an assistant or someone collaborating with me when possible on shoots, um, because it allows, like I said, that second eye. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I report mostly, alone, um, and, uh, it, you you get lost in it a little bit sometimes when you're working on a long form project in particular. Um, you you start wondering, oh, what is the story actually? Does it you know does it actually work? Are these the right characters to choose? And you know I'm always grateful for um, to have editors to kind of check in and look at those projects and give me feedback um, along the way. Um, that's that's pretty integral to my work. Um, uh, I like being in an editing room alone for long periods of time, um, but I, I again love to bring someone in to to take a look and say, "What do you think of this cut?" and give notes. And um, so, um, I'm always, you know, as much as I I work alone, I also am always incorporating the the uh, you know opinions and voices of other folks. So um, I I never feel like I'm truly alone in it. 
And that is so, so important. And, and it's something I, I kind of want to stress a little more because I feel like that is constantly something that solo video journalists in newsrooms feel that they're not, that they can't approach other people, that they're expected to do everything on their own and not really collaborate. And I know in my experience, I have always sought out other people who I admire in the newsroom, whose opinions I respect in the newsroom. And I've worked on a project for the Olympics called Korea ATL, which was a half hour special about the thriving Korean community in Metro Atlanta that was hidden in plain sight and remains hidden in plain sight. And it was... I had a part-time producer who worked two days a week with me on the project, and, and I had a web producer who helped with the social promotion of it. But other than that, I was pretty much working and producing that in a little over a month on my own. And you're absolutely right that you can get caught up in it, and you can start to wonder, okay, what's the story, and you constantly have to reset. But what helped me a lot, especially as I started editing, was constantly pulling people in the newsroom and having them watch a three-minute segment or a five-minute segment. Tell me if I was on the right track. Tell me if, you know, finding the person who I thought would be least interested in the subject and seeing if it held their attention for uh, for a few minutes. And that helped give me a lot more confidence. And I do think that that can be done, too, on on a day-turn level for folks who, you know, produce multiple stories in a day. You might not be able to ask for help in the middle of your shift while you're putting together your story, but you can certainly find people when it's done or before the next day and ask if you got it right or what could have been done better. And I just think that's so, so important because, you know, you've talked a lot in this interview and, and through your work about sustaining your voice and about knowing what you want to accomplish out of something. And I think part of the way as solo journalists that we accomplish those things are by selectively picking people to bounce ideas off of and by finding people who will challenge our assumptions and make sure that what we're doing does have the audience that we want. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm always, even when I'm, if I'm in the field alone, I'm always on the phone, um, you know, checking in with an editor or with, um, you know, a, a senior producer and saying, hey, you know, I just got access to this interview, um, what do you think about it? Uh, do you think that this is the right angle to go and approach with? You know, is there anything that you think that I think that I should include that I'm not thinking of? So I always make sure that I'm checked because I think good journalism, um, you know, needs that that kind of balance and and multiple levels of obviously corroboration and and having extra eyes on it is just so important. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Emily Cassie, multiple award-winning documentarian. She's done work for Huffington Post, The New York Times, NBC Left Field, and more. Emily, I like to use this final section of the podcast as an advice section for younger journalists. And as we've said, I mean, you are a younger journalist, well-positioned to give such advice because you've done everything I just mentioned at the age of 25 now. Um, What allowed you to develop so quickly as a journalist and you know, we've talked about finding the opportunities, but you also developed a skill and a touch with the camera and in the editing booth that is very, very rare, especially at your age, but in general in the business. What allowed you to develop so quickly with those skills? Um, wow. I mean, <laughs> I think that I've, you know, like I said, I'm always pushed by this idea of 
of injustice. Um, and that's really where I come from um, in terms of passion and motivation. So I, you know, from a young age, I, I understood that I had a creative skill set, that I liked to tell stories, that I thought films and journalism were really powerful, but it was all really a means to an end. Um, it was all, you know, how can I better impact or expose or lift up, you know, these issues um, that aren't being properly addressed um, and try to, you know, do my part to help shift shift the balance a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly motivated by that idea. And um, the rest of it, you know, I've, I've just really pushed myself along the way and sought out mentorship, which like I mentioned is just really important. Um, I'm self-taught in terms of, you know, camera skills and shooting. I learned that as I went, I had really never taken, I mean, don't, don't tell them this, but I've really never taken a, a photograph before I started working at the Huffington Post and somehow convinced them to let me do it. Um, and had several <laughs> very embarrassing run-ins with major photographers in the field who were, you know, seeing what I was doing and then kind of whispering over what I should actually be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think, you know, make mistakes along the way, but really just keep throwing myself out there and, and pushing forward and, and looking to people who are, you know, talented and, and doing so well in the field and, um, following their work and asking questions and holding myself accountable and always looking at what can I be doing better? What was, what worked about this piece? What, what didn't work? What, what can I push myself to do? Um, and, you know, I, and like I said, like, I think it's about advocating for yourself. I think if I were to give, you know, young journalists, um, advice, it would be, it would be to advocate for yourself and to, um, to ask for those opportunities. And then when you get them, make sure the work is really good <laughs> and the rest, you know, will unfold. But, um, I think it's all about perseverance. The other thing that, uh, that I think is so important to touch on. And we, I know we have a lot of college journalists who listen to this podcast and in researching you and finding out about the work that you did while in college at Brown University, uh, I think it just shows how much one can accomplish, especially with the resources that are available both on and through a college campus. You traveled to East Africa, produced a film, won a Student Academy Award, a student Oscar. I mean, these are things that are not available or that are available to many college students, but it requires the initiative to go out and do it and, and be willing to take those chances and maybe not succeed all the time, but to go out and, and try and to do. Sure. I, I, definitely. And I didn't know, you know, when I started making, I married my family's killer that that's the path that it would take. In fact, it was part of a, a you know, 200 page written thesis that I was doing um, on intermarriage and post-genocide Rwanda. And I thought, you know, I've been doing interviews on video for years. I I should explore what this would look like in documentary form. And then uh, it took on a life of its own. But all the, you know, the funding and grants that I got to do it was from Brown. So I was applying and I was speaking with professors and I was simultaneously doing the research and working on a dissertation that, you know, really backed up the thesis that I was presenting in the film. So, I mean, I think it's, take initiative, um, take advantage of the resources your college has. Don't be afraid to take a risk. Like you said, it, you know, many times doesn't work out. 
Um, but, but sometimes it does. And then it takes you on a path you didn't expect to be on. So, um, yeah, just keep pushing. Do you have a path that you envision for yourself or at this stage of your career, are you really kind of taking it story by story, year by year, or is there, is there a a grander plan that you have in mind already at this stage? Well, if I let everybody know now, then they won't be surprised when it happened. No, I, you know, (laughs) I'm, um, I think that's always something I'm thinking about, you know, what's the next goal? What, what do I want to accomplish next? Um, and, um, I, I'm always driven by the stories, by the issues that I think are important. So for now, that's how I'm moving forward. Um, and as opportunities come up, you know, I'm considering different sorts of projects and considering doing, you know, a doc series, considering doing something that's a little more cinematic and a little less news, but also considering, you know, moving into something potentially more full-time in news. So it's always a matter of what's going to be the best fit for me, where can I make the most impact, um, but, you know, I think down the road, I, I, I'd really love to see more of a crossover between um, uh, human rights research uh, and uh, storytelling journalism. Um, there's so much good research being done by organizations like Human Rights Watch um, that are, you know, starting to really visualize and storytell on their own. And I just think that there can be a lot more collaboration. So maybe one day um, I'll look to develop something that that really takes those two fields and, and tries some, some sort of crossover. And I think that's one thing where you have definitely found avenues where you can almost, and, and tell me if I'm off base here, but you can almost practice as much advocacy and activism as journalism in your work, where I feel like I know in, in most traditional news outlets, uh, there, there's just a little more caution put into that. Uh, not necessarily because the point of advocacy is wrong or, or incorrect, but because it, it, there's just that, I think, general default position of having to get all sides of the story. And, and not that, again, I, I hesitate to say that because it's not implying that you're not, but that even taking a position of advocacy is not necessarily the role of some traditional outlets. But I would I would say, though, that that line seems to be blurring quite a bit and the work that ProPublica does, the work that the Marshall Project does, uh, the work that every outlet you've described does, including the New York Times, I think shows how those two areas can blend and put out work. Because honestly, I do think a lot of what the audiences for these pieces want is something that will be, will step out of the bounds of traditional journalism and take aside a little more and, and fight for something the way that your pieces tend to fight. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what it's about is about being honest about the premise of the piece. So I, you know, whether that's saying, you know, this is a piece of opinion journalism, which, you know, the New York times has an entire opinion section and a video as well. Um, that's very clear that these are perspectives. Um, whereas their news journalism is, you know, it's really balanced and thought through really carefully. So it really depends on what I'm working on in what context. So um, my current piece for the Times, you know, we're really, really careful about making sure that it's bulletproof, that it's really carefully considers all sides of the story. And I try to do that in all of my work. But there are some issues where, you know, when you when you're dealing with like um, a healthcare uh, scam and a sex trafficking scandal, where I don't really need to do any sort of advocacy or inserting my own opinions because it's, you know, there's a pretty clear injustice being done. Um, and there are people to speak to that from all sides. Um, so, 
um, you know, I tend to focus on issues that have a, a pretty clear wrong being done. Um, but I, you know, I, I really do maintain the journalistic um, principles and integrity of making sure that it's completely balanced and, and really thoroughly fact-checked and thought through. And if, you know, in the documentary world, there's much more room for kind of opinion and different takes um, and uh, really different approaches. And I think as as long as you're clear on that premise and making sure that people know that, then um, then it's legitimate and, and important. And I think the word bulletproof is so accurate for if you're if you're doing that kind of work in a traditional journalistic uh, outlet that you know if you're going to go out on a limb then yeah you got to show that you have your facts right and even if there's disagreement at least you can point to the numbers or the research or the statistics or the studies and you know be absolutely confident in the stance that you're taking so I, I think that's a really good way for anyone to look at it yeah. And I, you know, I do extensive research for every piece I, I, I do. I really think of each of them as like an individual thesis or, you know, going back to, to my, my days in grad school. Um, you know, I really think of it that way and I end up producing, you know, like 50 pages of writing on the subject for any of the pieces that I'm doing. Um, and really assessing the contextual history of, you know, why this has happened, who are the different players, tons of stuff that never ends up in the piece, um, but that really, you know, solidifies the background. So it's not just, you know, showing up somewhere and, and covering, you know, something that's breaking and, and then just throwing it out there. It's really grounded in a lot of um, research um, and kind of vetted facts. So, um uh, and, and I advocate for that in any kind of journalism. Outstanding. Well, Emily, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And I always like to ask with or uh, end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think um, it's a really crazy time for this country. Um, and, you know, sadly, I think there's a lot of distrust in the media. But there's a lot of really excellent work being done. Um, and I, I think right now I'm just really proud to be a reporter and really proud to see the work of my colleagues and, um, and I'm really just amazed at the commitment to truth, um, that so many, uh, journalists in this country have and, um, hope that we can continue to push, um, for that truth, um, and for that commitment to, um, you know, spotlighting injustice. So, um, thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. The work can be found on Huffington Post, New York Times, NBC Left Field, and her website, emilycassie.com. Emily Cassie, thanks so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks, Matt. The Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.